Welcome, and indeed welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochley, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hi. And George Hoare. Hello. Hey. Phil, tell us what we're talking about today. So today we're going to be talking about the new scramble for Africa. I mean, I guess, you know, um, whether there is one, if there is one, what its main drivers and um, dimensions are. And this in particular is prompted by... Um, all the discussion over growing Russian involvement in particularly in Central and Northern Africa, the former um, French colonial empire in that region, because there's just a constant stream of headlines about the Wagner mercenary group in particular that's been involved in all sorts of um, military confrontations in that region, how far recent coup d'etat in the region favor Russia over um, and are kind of gradually eroding the power of France and so on. So it's basically something that's been prompted by headlines and we're going to try and see how far we can see what might be happening behind all the um, talk of uh, growing Russian influence and how far that, per, you know, how far that betokens a new geopolitical struggle in the continent. Yeah, I mean, George, we're, we're um, I guess, in a new Cold War. Um, that's what people are calling it. That's what you're calling it. I believe you have a, a a theory here about how this Cold War is not about the internal contradictions of the two societies in in the Cold War, but is rather about two different forms of capitalism or something like that. I mean, it's it's hardly an original theory. Look, I mean, for this for starters, calling it a new Cold War, I think is stupid, and actually is probably of a part with a wider um, Why? problem that we can't. Well, we one we can't name things anymore. Right. Everything is post something. Everything is neo or new something. Um, and it's been a very long time since something has emerged, which has its original name, which, you know, might be kind of unimportant, superficial, just about kind of the naming of it. But I think it speaks to uh, a lack of um, historical imagination. But anyway, but a cold, that, but a that, cold that, war that, is like a deadlocked, you know, it's a deadlocked kind of geopolitical standoff that neither side can kind of win outright through a full on military confrontation. So it's not, you know, like it's uh, describing a particular kind of conflict. I mean, isn't that an accurate way to describe? Yeah. No, and, and, and indeed, I think that in this case, it does seem that we're, you know, plunging headlong into a new geopolitical conflict between two blocks. What's interesting about this new Cold War is that it fits the misleading stereotype about the original Cold War, which is to say that 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 was described as East versus West, as if they are two uh, competing blocks which are basically equivalent to one another in some sense, and that they are you know, locked in competition with one another and fighting proxy wars here and there. What is distinct about the original Cold War is precisely its ideological underpinnings, that it wasn't just a battle between uh, equivalent blocks, but ones which proposed, at least theoretically, um, a, a different ways to organize their own societies. Not only that, but those societies were riven internally by those same conflicts, um, by the conflict between 
the working class and the bourgeoisie or between socialism and capitalism and so on. And that was something that was, so it wasn't merely just these um, homogenous blocks uh, left and right, not left and right, but east and west, um, left and right of your map as you're looking at it, um, you know, that, that are fighting between each other, but that there are in, in, in conflicts which are internal to those societies. What's remarkable about this emerging new Cold War is how they're all fighting on the same terrain. They're different capitalist powers, which don't really propose any different differing ideologies. At the most, they're sort of ex post facto um, kind of legitimating ideologies to say we're fighting, you know, the West says we're fighting for liberalism and democracy or for feminism or for, you know, minority rights and whatever, whereas Russia will present itself as fighting for, I don't know, traditional norms and values and China will say I don't, I'm not sure exactly what China's pitch is, but effectively we, pro- we, stable, we will have wealth, we'll have stability. Yeah, kind and, of and, prosperity, yeah. stability, order, um, kind of sound, sagacious government as opposed to the instability that comes with populism and democratic upheaval. I think, you know, that would probably be it. But the, I mean, so it's interesting, it's worth teasing out a bit, I think, because of course there is, I think, Vladimir Putin, when he claims to be defending, you know, a European ideal, um, a world in which, you know, God doesn't have um, different gender pronouns. This was one of the idiotic kind of points he made in a speech recently in reference to, um, you know, something that was brewing in the Anglican Church here in the UK, just for the benefit of listeners who don't. I mean, the Anglican Church is definitely the dumbest and dappiest of all the worldwide churches. Um, but there was a debate there I'm about sure. whether or not it definitely is, George. You can't it's do a most, gammon. You cannot the most do a gammon defense. You cannot do a gammon defense of the Anglican Church. I absolutely can. One based on Battenberg and cups of tea. Um, it is a very. <laughs> and you're just proving a... Phil's point, actually. <laughs> Well, it's better. I, actually, I guess the Catholics have um, wafers and wine, which is more, a bit more rock and roll. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to to interrupt you, but I just had to defend my my national church, which I'm not <laughs> a member of. He's anyway. So he was, made, you know, he makes this pitch about Russia as the defender of traditional European civilization, I suppose. Um, but it seems to me, you know, I mean, partly that's trolling, you know, like I mean. Trolling? Sorry, trolling. Trolling, yeah. So it's trolling the it's trolling Western states. Um but there is a you know, there is a, an attempt to kind of uh appeal to uh, European particular kind of European conservatives and the ways in which um you know there was also famously kind of Marine Le Pen, the French um populist, national populist leader, had to rely on Russian bank accounts because of the way in which they were kind of boxed in within France itself. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I think the kind of the ideological standoff between uh, the claims of socialism, communism on one side and um, liberal capitalism on the other is a much more important standoff. But there are ideological dimensions as well to the conflict today, if not as pronounced. And they're both lay, they're both laid over similar economic structures so i suppose the question is how deep you know how deep the conflict goes hmm. i mean i my, my take is that they're secondary i don't want to spend too long on this but i mean i, I think that they're no, no, fair enough, yeah. rather secondary and uh, you know after the fact and you know to the, to a certain extent even the original yeah, imperial competition between before 1914 itself was also 
um, had it was infused with values or claims about values, um, which was also rather superficial. Yeah, national you, value, I suppose, hmm. yeah. So when you were saying like the different pitches that the, the, play, the different players were making, the way I sort of interpreted this was that, you know, each each of US, China, Russia, <clears throat> and Europe, particularly France, they have to like, what's their reason for wanting to be involved in the new scramble um, in Africa? And for like Europe or France, it's very much like, we'd, you know, we've been there, we've done that, we have the expertise, the technocratic expertise within kind of colonialism. So leave it to us, we know what to do. Um, with China, it's like, you know, you're going to get a good deal. We're going to give you some infrastructure. You're going to employ some Chinese workers and you're going to give us some some raw materials. So actually, like to the neutral observer, if such a thing exists, then China and Africa is, um, you know, it's just like a fair fair trade on all sides for and the US. Not, and we're not going to give you kind of your, we're not going to make you fill out human rights forms and gender compliance forms. All we're going to do is kind of give you money, build you some stadiums and roads, take your, uh, you know, take your diamonds and whatever. And that's it. It's, yeah. That's it. There's no kind it's quite of straightforward. nothing else comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the gender pronouns thing might be a bit inflated in your in your head, perhaps, as as kind of the main driver of of kind of the new scramble of I didn't say Africa, gender pronouns, that's the Anglican church. <laughs> okay. I mean <laughs> Sorry, like man. the point is like, you know, um whatever the new kind of thing is that Western NGOs and Western states will kind of force on to, you know, kind of uh, poorer developing countries, you know, like gay rights will be the thing that the American flags now they'll kind of fly, fly the pride flag. And the Chinese yeah. won't do that. They, they won't have put ideological conditions on what they do with their aid. I think that's part of the pitch. Yeah. I just wanted to finish my run through. So if you have like China, it's a good deal. You, um, Europe or France, like historic links, we we know how to do it. The pitch that the US is making is just basically military might. Like, you know, you can do do a do a deal with us, but ultimately it's due to our military superiority why we have a, a right to be involved in this scramble. And then Russia, I think, is the least clear. That's why there has to be that kind of ideological defense because it's not straightforwardly a good material deal, historical links or or military. I know that is like completely oversimplified, but that was my starting point. Oh, that, and that's when that, you said pitches, that's, you know. That's yeah, what there is. Thinking. There is. I think the pitch, the pitch, I think, for the Russian angle is it's just, it does. So I don't, you know, I mean, Putin can go on about kind of gender pronouns for the Anglican, you know, the decadence of the Anglican church. I mean, that's a pitch to Western conservatives um, and maybe to a few layers, you know, a few layers in Russia. I don't think, you know, many Russians particularly care what Western churches are doing. Um, you know, it's not going to kind of make much difference if you're worried about sanctions and inflation and whatnot. But I think in Africa, I mean, I think the pitch, it's partly, you know, I think it's probably the appeal of Russia is more as a counterweight to France and America. So you know that you can, there is at least political and diplomatic space to play off the sides against each other. So it gives you room for maneuver, even if it doesn't have the kind of ideological um, or material backing as China might, does now or as Russia might have had in the Cold War. And the other element I think, and this I get from some of my colleagues who are Africanists, is just um, military, right? Yeah. In the basic sense that they've still, a lot of these African states still have huge kind of, or at least in, so far as they do have armories, they're still Soviet era. And so they're still kind of locked into um, Russian military um, disbursement, basically. So it's still easier and cheaper to go back to Russia for your guns and ammo 
um, than it is to try and kind of um, start a new military security force from scratch with a different country's weaponry. So there is yeah. convenience as well. There is something in that. If you already have all of the kit, then just buying the new the new ammo is much cheaper than replacing it all. And also those AK-47s last forever. But Alex, is that how you meant it? With the with Well, the no, pictures? I mean, no, you're right to draw us our attention to it. And we're going to go in a little bit more depth into um, Russia's involvement in Africa because I think it's something that has come to light quite a lot in the past year in light of the Ukraine war, but was something that was not very much discussed until then, um, certainly not in kind of you know mainstream newspapers and so on. It's worth noting that Af- that Russia is by far has been has been over the past twenty years that by far the biggest exporter of arms to Africa by a significant margin, um, probably more than China and the U.S. and France combined, or somewhere along those lines. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the Russian cell is um, we're going to kind of kill your jihadists for you and provide some security, but without, which is what the U.S. also proposes to do. But the U.S.'s package comes with a lot of other strings attached. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to paint uh, Russia's intervention in, in um, you know, positive light. I think it's worth, though, as part of kind of fleshing out kind of who the main players are and what their pitch is, also what their propaganda is about why the other guys are bad, why you shouldn't do business with the other guys. Um, so with China, uh, the U.S. and European um, propaganda says Effectively, I think debt trap diplomacy is often um, the the line that's pushed that China uh, will build you these new stadiums, but will charge you huge amounts of interest until you can no longer afford to pay for it. And then we'll have to give it up. Um, and China thereby acquires assets and in, in you know key places in Africa and beyond. And the example that's always given actually is about the Sri Lankan port. Um, this has been kind of uh, debunked, and I think we'll include a, a link to this in the show notes because it's quite interesting to look into that. And we're going to have a future episode on Chinese foreign policy uh, in the future. But anyway, that's kind of the, the 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 you know the pitch that Europeans and Americans say about China and say like, don't do business with them because they're going to get you into a huge amount of debt. Um, the pitch against Russia, I think, is straightforward. Russia is you know terrible human rights abuser, doesn't care about anything. They don't even love their own children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the interesting then the Russian and probably to a certain extent, the Chinese pitch against Europe is, hey, these are your old colonial masters. You don't want them. Um, they're doing you no know, good. And in fact, um, Russia's um, footprint in particularly in, in West Africa and the Sahel has increased as France's has receded a, a point well made by um, our recent guest towards the end of last year Yvon Guichois um, a former colleague of Phil's where um, in episode 303 and 304 we talked about the failure of the French forever war particularly in the Sahel um, and then I think I don't know what the, the pitch is the, the propaganda against um, US involvement is but I think there it's also that you know that comes with a lot of strings attached and to not do deals with the U.S. would mean, you know, just having a kind of economics first basis that you might have with the Chinese. I think that's what the Chinese would sell mm. um, their African partners uh, in a way that the, you know, against the U.S. Yeah. So it's like the U.S. and China are offering similar things, but China is just it's just cheaper and, and better value, um, perhaps. But no, I think this idea of a pitch is, is somewhat important because obviously it is the or the propaganda because it is obviously addressed at the same time to the particularly kind of conservative elites within the home country elites of other countries and also certain layers of the you know depending on the the, the state within africa of the kind of the mid the ruling classes middle classes and state bureaucracy there so it is a whole kind of obviously multifaceted 
um, machine. And that's that's why you know states have foreign offices and and you know all the mandarins and and consultants and hangers on who who work there to 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 deliver this message and and um, you know execute these plans. But before we go into more depth, one last point about pitches, I think that it's, I mean, this might seem an obvious point, but in contrast to the old scramble of Africa between 1881 and 1914, you know, those were not sovereign states, at least, you know, um, not even formally sovereign states, uh, whereas Africa is made up of formally sovereign states now, and therefore um, they have their own elites, which need to be pitched to. And I think that's why it's worth talking about, which is rather different to what would be happening at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, where, you know, they didn't really yeah. make the sell so much. Do you want to know? So do you want to know what Cecil Rhodes's pitch in inverted, in heavily inverted commas was? He just wanted to paint the whole, the whole map pink, basically. And he said, I'd, I'd annex other planets if I could. That's not a, you know, particularly strong pitch to, um, to kind of, <laughs> um to Rhodesian um elites or, or anything like that it's just here's here's what what's right for for Britain so yeah I think the there is an element was, of this but that pitch was also um there was a pitch that progress and modernity um you know had to be born could only be born by particular um races and that it required political tutelage over, you know, kind of indefinite political tutelage over other people. Um, so there was a pitch there too, though. And there's always a pitch, I think. You know, the question is how um, how effective and convincing it is. There's always some kind of pitch. And I think you could make the point even that another difference between the Cold War, the kind of Cold War One and Cold War Two, if you want to call it like that, is it's kind of an inversion of the way um, of how it stood then. You know, then kind of Russia was the main player and China was the kind of adjunct. And now that's reversed. China is the core of the new authoritarian bloc in terms of economic and political power. Russia is the adjunct. You know, it's not a precise kind of uh, symmetry, yeah, no, but I think there's, yeah. some, there's some element there. And I think also there's much less ideological, you know, I mean, the Chinese originally, they had a strongly ideological pitch to Africa. That was the three worlds theory the kind of core of um, Maoist ideology and the idea that there was the kind of, that the anti-imperialist world was like a global um, peasant uh, kind of uh, territory that encircled the imperial kind of uh, metropolitan urban core. And so the same way that Mao's kind of peasant guerrillas had taken over China, the colonial colonized world, the imperial, the um, third world, would uh, surround, choke off the the imperialist centers, eventually overthrow them. Um, so, as as per the guerrilla war analogy, so you know that was a highly kind of ideological vision of and the for the alliance between African states and China. And now, you know, it's much more it's much more pragmatic, and doesn't require kind of commitment to any kind of particular vision of world order. Rather, it comes, you know, basically they, you know, it's basically uh, a pitch which is based on material gain rather than some kind of uh, political payoff in the distant future. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess it's it's really, you know, the first Cold War had like the first world versus the second world and the third world. It had, you know, some pretty big ideological aspirations. And now it's a bit more like, well, do you want this <laughs> this stadium or would you prefer these arms? You know, it's... it's um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one of the things which the 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 poverty of the language of like 
it has to be a cold war so we have to see everything in the in the previous um sort of terms as alex was saying that does you know that does tend to hide that in fact i mean just i think i'm sure we'll come back to this towards the end of the episode but i mean the one positive kind of spin on this i guess is that um with several different players um trying to get involved in in africa that um there is a way to play them play these powers off against each other and to try to seek out the best deal um which is a different terrain to that which obtained um in the period of the, the high point of uncontested american hegemony um in the 90s and 2000s yeah so there's that i think i mean and if you know i mean i think in as much as it gives greater political space to african states um to exert their independence that seems to me broadly a positive thing you know in practice however it seems that some of them are so kind of uh, penetrated and dependent um and if they just become kind of effective battlefields for new geopolitical contests then obviously it's meaningless to talk about political space at all Okay, so um, let's move through some of the reasons that Africa has a new place potentially in world politics, different to to what's in the case for for the for the past yeah. uh, decades. So it's worth just, I think, quickly going through um, the factors that kind of shape Africa's place in world politics. So I mean, you know, and this just builds on some of the things that we've been talking about. But the most obvious, and well, one of the most obvious and primary ones would be you know, just the sheer kind of uh, enormity of Chinese industrialization has driven the, um, you know, drove the commodity boom, as well as Chinese expansion in economic expansion in Africa, building ports, roads, mines, um, stadia and hospitals by the wayside in order to hoover up all the raw materials that China needed for its industrialization. And the side, the add on to that would be perhaps, you know, now the green energy transition. There was the recent piece about lithium mining in the Congo and just how still kind of incredibly brutal and primitive it is. So the material that goes into, you know, the precious kind of raw materials that go into powering the new um, batteries that will be at the core of green energy transition, at least at the moment, is still, you know, a lot of it still comes from from Africa. So what else? What other aspects of uh, what other aspects of world politics shape Africa's place at the moment in world affairs? Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's I, the tendency, I guess, would be to dismiss it. Though I was reading um, in preparation for this, some source from 2011. I was talking about you know the past decade has seen has been one of the best periods of growth in Africa's history, which came as a surprise. But then, of course, I remembered the commodities boom, um, which so impacted, of course, Latin America as well. And that's a pretty radically different context to, um, to you know, 10 years on from that. Um, and the, you know, the prospects for a large swathe of African countries is so dire. Um, we you can refer to South Africa, which is one of its leading economies. You know the leading economy on the continent. Um, and check an episode we did with um, Benjamin Fogel a little while well, a couple of months ago, um, which we'll link to in the show notes, showing just what a you know the disaster basically of the post-colonial state, and that applies to Nigeria as well, which is the most populous and um, one of the more powerful um, African states, and it also seems to be completely um, um, 
dominated by a, a, a klept, an old gerontocratic kleptocratic elite um, where there's very few options and then riven by ethnic conflicts and all the rest and state capacity is unable to I mean there's just a lack of state capacity despite endowments like oil wealth and so on um, and yet despite all that yeah there, there's these quite key issues which make it um, which make it I guess more central to to global affairs and one of them, I guess, maybe obvious again, but it's just demographically how much chi- how much Africa um, is growing um, and how young it is as a continent relative to much older continents of like North America and Europe. Yeah, yeah, shrinking continents into in sooner or later, like like but Europe. A- but I think Asia, it's just Asia too, right? I mean, China and yeah. Japan. The I mean, just just to um, echo one of the things that you were saying there, Alex. The the kind of i think the overall picture is is quite like pessimistic this past decade of africa rising like driven in large part as you were saying by these kind of by the commodity boom is now like it's it's the picture now on a kind of state by state basis is much more around debt conflict food insecurity stagnation there is a um you know there is a much more of a of a pessimism i think to generalize across you know a whole continent which is often a bit dangerous to do but yeah i think that in addition to that obviously some of the material factors the the demographic factors there are also some ideological ones the um the kind of and particularly perhaps with reference to to europe and france above all this kind of idea of a we now have a post colonial president so macron is a is a you know he's to define to to think of yourself as post-colonial is is interesting in to the extent that it's still defined in terms of a kind of colonial disposition so you could you could sort of you know see this as as maybe he is the leading synthesis of of um, technocracy and populism this is the way that maybe some of the other european states those old colonial powers will will go it seems quite difficult to imagine um a british kind of like i don't know exactly what the the equivalent of of the kind of the french african synthesis would be um in the british context but you know maybe that's the direction of travel there as well yeah i mean and to throw another thing in is um labor of course there's no shortage of labor globally um but always uh manufacturers always on the search for ever cheaper labor um as well as the kind of infrastructure to sustain production uh you know it, it's already been noted already over the past decade quite a lot that a lot of manufacturing which is originally based in china um has now is now shifting to elsewhere in southeast asia for example to vietnam to cambodia and so on um just because chinese wages have risen so much that it has uh, certain, to a certain extent, priced out manufacturing from there, and it's shifted to Southeast Asia. And w- I guess one of the questions uh, would be is whether whether Africa and whether certain you know kind of Af- whether Africa, various African countries and large cities will be able to host um, manufacturing, which then um, shifts as shifts over to there as wages rise in Vietnam, for example. I don't know how much evidence there is of this so far, in part because of the kind of lack of um, either lack of security, lack of uh, kind of other infrastructure, lack of um, skills amongst workers, education and so on, which which prevents that from happening. But one would think that would be the new the next phase. Um, importantly, though, I think and to, to argue against any um, sort of um, Panglossian vision of modernization would be that, you know, we know that uh, industry manufacturing absorbs very little 
and ever decreasing amounts of labor. And so the idea that that would then lift up Africa and kind of um, pe have people leave the slums to, you know, formal former formal yeah, but, uh, um, living also, and so on is, is, is improbable. We're um, also going through a period though in which um you know the question of industrialization is one for the developed world at the moment, right? So with Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, the questions of whether how far developed countries are going to subsidize um you know the energy transition, invest in new green industries and so on. So I mean I think you know for all of that means in effect that um whatever African countries manage to pick up out of uh, investment in a global sense, it's going to be fairly minimal. I mean, the other one story to throw in here was also the, um, uh, the telling off that Macron received from the uh, president of Democratic Republic of Congo, right? Um, Chisakedi, if I pronounced his uh, name correctly. This was uh, just at the beginning of March during uh, Macron's visit around Africa. And he, um, you know, he kind of gave uh, Macron, he in fact humiliated the French president, gave him a dressing down, um, which was widely reported, you know, both on social media and the regular media. And I thought it was interesting because the fact that he felt that he could get away with that. You know, I'm sure he kind of, it was a calculated move. And the fact that he felt he could get away with it, the Congolese president, that is, I think speaks to the fact that they clear, you know, they have, they feel that they have that greater political room to maneuver. He feels that he can publicly humiliate a leading European leader uh, because he knows that, you know, he can, he can, he's got other cards to play. So I think that probably speaks to, um, you know, the reality uh, the reality of the moment. The other or, things to hmm. automacronian overreach, but yeah, sorry, you were going to go on to. I, I think amounts, you know there are there, it amounts to the same thing. I think there are some, there are quite a few other other um, factors here, but I think you were just about to go into into them. So pass it to yeah, you. it was to mention, like I mean, the other element which is vital, you know, to mention is the fact that the African state has been so. I mean, as a result of neoliberalism. I think, but also, I mean, economically, but also just, I mean, you could call it uh, political neoliberalism, perhaps, but also the year of uh, globalization came with the year of military intervention. And Africa was uh, particularly subject to, um, you know, significant episodes of military intervention. In the Horn of Africa, you had effectively a forever war before the forever war, reaching back to the 1990s when the Somali state collapsed. And then following on from that, cycles of repeated military intervention, either by uh, U.S. allies in the region or the U.S. directly itself. Um, and those are ongoing. And then, you know, most radically yeah. and recently, um, you had the bombing of Libya in 2011, uh, which has left the country kind of effectively without any kind of uh, effective centralized state authority shattered into separate provinces, as well as sucking in regional powers from the Middle East, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt, as well as increasingly, apparently, the Russians, um, the Italians. And it's, um, it's connect. I mean, it's the theme of the book that I wrote, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, the way in which kind of supranational political organizations have um, crushed out the intermediate layer of the national sovereign state. And the result has been um, the supersession of the sovereign state, but rather than the human rights utopia, the cosmopolitan utopia that we or the cosmopolitan ideal that we were promised, we've had cosmopolitan dystopia instead, which is um, forever war, effectively, as well as the disintegration of any kind of centralized 
public authority that's able to maintain order or offer any kind mm. of prospect of maintaining the momentum of modernization and development. And so that's an important part of the story as well. Um, and yeah. that you know, is not only Libya, but also Mali, the Central African Republic, um, Sudan and Darfur, the separation of South Sudan, the emergence of South Sudan as this independent state, but that's on life support through UN dependence on aid agencies, NGOs, and uh, the United Nations actual kind of peacekeeping forces on the ground. It's a, as a political system, it's entire, you know, it's, uh, I mean, this is a thesis made consistently by various political scientists, um, including, uh, I mean, I know like uh, Graham Harrison, um, a British political, a British Africanist political scientist has made this point consistently, but there is a, a level at which it's impossible to tell where um, the kind of international organizations and supranational governance begins or ends and where kind of indigenous African political structures begin because they're so intertwined, interpenetrated, politically and materially dependent on these external structures um, yeah. that are effectively inside out. And so, so yeah, just yeah. to kind of expand on this a little bit, I think if you, you know, we ha- we talked about some of the material, demographic, ideological factors that have elevated Africa's place in world politics. I mean, the military like in addition to the humanitarian intervention and peacekeeping things that you were mentioning there, Phil, like this, the kind of <clears throat> the, the justifications for intervening based on stopping drug smuggling, stopping like the roots of the global war on terror, the military outposts, which, you know, which dot across Africa and have replaced missionaries now as like these, these kind of outposts, which are not, not sovereign territory within sovereign states. All of these sorts of things are a part of it. And I think that does, it does link like if that's the kind of the, I can't remember what the right hand and the left hand of the state are. If that's the the coercive bit, then the the INGO is the um, the consensual or the kind of the softly softly bit. And there is a whole industry. There is a whole like um, the idea of NGOization. Originally, this is in kind of from the, the the Balkan context, but it applies very clearly in Africa. There's there's a whole. Um, yeah, sub industry of essentially, you know, I don't want to say who we're talking about, but like NGO workers, like of a particular kind of managerial class background, they go over to to um, to Africa, and and that's that's how they kind of project the authority of of the home state and end up kind of playing a, an important role in the governance and civil society of of those um, of those states. Yeah, so, I mean, one, one thing about just about the, the it, it's worth recalling, I guess, that the the military intervention, one has a certain, um, you know, there's a certain demand in, from many states as well, because of their uh, inability to exercise sovereignty, that there's a demand to do policing work effectively to, um, you know, put down jihadist or separatist insurrections in, in various places. And that's testament to kind of failure of development and failure of the post-colonial state. But it's interesting how much this is still going on, despite, for example, France uh, announcing its formal withdrawal and the fact that international politics is not structured and certainly it's not the narrative to international politics anymore, that there is a global war on terror. You know, things have very much moved on, um, you know, by by a couple of steps, actually, if we're, if we if we if we're to track it, you know, first the pandemic, and then now obviously the you know kind of new Cold War, conflict with China, Ukraine war, um, but how much these kind of operations are still ongoing, and uh, George has already referenced that it's not only sort of anti-terror or anti-jihadist, but um, stop the flow of migrants, 
of course, which um, you know many Western powers are complicit in in terms of destroying the Libyan state uh, and how that has uh, created a new channel for migration and so on. Um, I don't know if there's anything else that we want to add in um, here finally um, about why Africa has, has now kind of emerged as this new theater um, before we move on. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I mean, it's. I suppose it's asking which of these factors, if any, are more important than the other. So we've listed, you know, we've kind of listed demand for raw materials, which is, you know, kind of a perennial question of African politics and its relationship to the wider global economy. Um, the global war on terror, humanitarian intervention, um, French kind of power projection, what have you, all of this. Um, how I suppose is it possible to is it possible to provide some kind of or should we you know kind of provide some hierarchy or ranking of significance in terms of um, these questions? The reason I ask this is because you know one of the questions that I have is how significant is Russia? actually in africa you know i mean that russia is kind of yeah. struggling to occupy the russian speaking part of ukraine you know um and the idea that it's uh you know that this kind of much weakened much weakened russia today without the um without any of the kind of ideological status or economic size that it endured enjoyed during the original Cold War, that it's now kind of rampaging across Africa and forcing the Western states to pull out all the stops to contain it, it doesn't seem to me especially convincing. And I don't doubt that, um, you know, that uh, I don't doubt that Russia, you know, is an important, that Africa is an important military market for Russia. But the idea that Africa is in any way kind of strategically significant to Russia, the way that, um, you know, Ukraine or even Syria is seems to me to be you know so, kind of not really credible. Mm-hmm. So you know, is Russian is Russian Africa really a thing, or is it actually a rationale for continued a recycling of uh, Western intervention and yeah. involvement well, I mean, in Africa? My my response to your question would be like, what is the what it, you ask for like a ranking or something like this, or like, but how how would we go about doing this? Are we going to all vote and then? this is a the topical reference given when we're recording this, then whoever, whichever um, factor gets the most votes from experts, us and others, gets a small gold statue and we just give it to the, the one that we think is is the, the easiest for people to digest. I mean, this is an Oscars reference. I was just very, oh, I'm, still an, I'm still annoyed about the best picture, about the, the, the film that won all the, all those awards and everybody said is important and good and I didn't like. Anyway, um, no, I mean, I think you have to start probably really to answer the question more seriously from those material factors always. But there is a question as to why, you know, why now? Why has this, why has Africa's place in world politics changed? If indeed it has, and why does there seem to be a noticeable uptick in the in the kind of the scramble such that we could have this new scramble for Africa, which we might even describe as, you know, if you had the scramble for Africa colonization and then that went away for a while the end of colonization we're kind of in the end of the end of colonization period perhaps yeah i mean i think to answer both questions at once is the degree to which one it's kind of a soft target 
Um, and I think the Russian case is a great example of this. It comes through very strongly um, in the dossier, which, which uh, the Financial Times has put out about Russia in, in Africa. And of course, you know, have to take this with uh, enough of a, a fairly large pinch of salt in terms of it potentially representing Western interests. Um, you know, that reportage <laughs> representing Western interests more than it being necessarily an objective account. But nevertheless, it, I mean, full of fascinating um, little bits there. And, you know, the, the, the country where Russia is most involved is Central African Republic, one of the weakest and poorest states in the entire world. And it is a facet of its struggles in Ukraine and its encirclement by the West that has led it actually to towards Africa to do uh, to use what resources it has to use what resources Russia has um, to gain it some influence elsewhere. And because it is one of the, the second largest arms exporter in the world, it's a pretty and it has um, the mercenaries uh, of the Wagner group to send into various parts of the world. It's kind of an easy win. And a lot of the reportage is put in precisely those terms. It's like this is a an easy way to buy influence in a part yeah. of the world where, you know, it is cheap, which contrasts to, for example, you know, you're not going to have a scramble over um, the areas of the si South China Sea. Um, I did find it. Sorry, but you're not going to have Russia, but you're not going to have Russia and, you know, Germany, for example, um, trying to gain influence um, there because it's, it's, it's China and it's the U S right. Whereas, um, Africa has well and Vietnam and the Philippines and you know sure but there's I much, mean, I take there's much stronger the point, states and yeah the point like, is like generally states are more consolidated and stronger in um in Asia in East Asia and Southeast Asia compared to Africa I suppose my thought is that it's more you know it's uh it's an easy win for Russia but it's also um its effect is essentially a spoiling kind of effect you know it's a way to kind of chisel it's a way to chisel away at French influence. It's humiliating, I suppose, to a degree for France and for Western, for a place that the West has felt kind of um, complacent and confident about. Which, which is in it's keeping no, with it's no foreign real, policy, right? Like, yeah, that's true. But it's no real gain for Russia either. No, no, but I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying, yeah, this is in keeping of, you know, because of its limited yeah, We're not disagreeing. Power. I'm just, you know, I'm just yeah, expanding on the point. Yeah, yeah. But just to, just to return to the Wagner group, briefly because I, I did find i have found some of the reportage on like on them a little bit um unsatisfactory it's just basically blaming these um private military contractors or pmc and i think it's always the easy thing to do to just blame the pmc and just have that as the explanation of what's okay, going that on one so was good yeah that's I'll fair that one. you make a good one. point i actually waited i didn't interrupt when you when you a serious point but i just it just came to me no, i mean there's the, another the, the whole... there's another element there though right which is that i mean may you know um it's a chance to talk about russian mercenaries right so i mean it's been western generally it's been western mercenaries that have been seen as the problem in africa um you know and it's been western atrocities in afghanistan as well as french atrocities in um you know, in uh, kind of Mali and uh, Chad and whatnot that have been the kind of problem for military intervention. And now you can almost kind of feel the relief kind of flooding through the Western press that they can talk about the Wagner group, yeah. that they can talk about Russian atrocities in Ukraine rather than, you know, kind of another drone bombing of a wedding party in Yemen or Afghanistan or something. So you can definitely feel the kind of the, um, that, 
you know, as part of this, as part of the narrative surrounding the new geopolitical struggle in Africa. Yeah. And, and and the Wagner Group and Yevgeny Prigozhin in particular are um, such cartoon baddies. Though the guy, it's worth looking into that his career path is is just is amazing. It, it's kind of Hollywood movie stuff, going from selling hot dogs on the street of St. Petersburg to setting up a catering company to catering for the president to becoming a you know a trusted man of of Putin's to getting you know kind of a um, yeah, effectively mercenary army um, at his disposal, um, all the way to becoming a sort of mining magnate. I mean, he controls lots of mining interests uh, across Africa. Um, inclusive so i mean it's it does it is kind of the um the image of that the west likes to paint and in many cases is correct of a kind of not only um brutal and bloody um russian regime but also one which is which is so imbricated with mafia and and you know private criminal interests but you're so, so wait a minute you're saying that the the guys with the the badge with a black background and a white skull are the bad guys in this situation <laughs> <laughs> So I suppose inevitably we come to the classic question, which is uh, comparing contemporary, um, you know, if there is a contemporary scramble for Africa, new um, imperial rivalries and geopolitical conflict in Africa, how it compares to the old scramble for Africa. And I suppose the core or the element that I suppose would often get overlooked, but is in fact the most important one of the classical critique of imperialism in Africa the classical critique always held that it was a displacement activity, in essence. Um, so uh, Hobson, Hilferding and Lenin, you know, they, they all had kind of uh, different versions of, um, of the same theory, essentially. But one element that they all shared was that it was displacement, uh, either for economic um, impasse or decay in the advanced capitalist states or a way to um, relieve social and political pressure. Either directly through colonization, pop, so you know demographic pressures, or politically, um, as a way of relieving class conflict very directly. And um, George mentioned Cecil Rhodes earlier on, and there's the famous in Lenin's Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism. He quotes Cecil Rhodes' justification for imperialism, which is, "If we don't have imperialism abroad, we'll have civil war at home." So, you know that kind of displacement understanding imperialism as displacement was at the core of the classical critique so i suppose the question that flows from that is is it possible to understand insofar as there is kind of new imperial rivalries and new geopolitical conflict in africa today how far can it be understood as displacement activity with from within the advanced capitalist world yeah, I mean, it's 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 the it's a really key question. I think the, I mean, the thing that isn't the same is today you don't have this situation of kind of like internal markets not keeping up with internal production in like in Europe or or the states because you know that production isn't really occurring in the in the kind of the capitalist core. So there is, but I think there is still something that is being displaced, and I haven't fully got my head around this. But the the first thing that really came to mind was a, around essentially climate intervention. This idea that you have this um, it's the same as with with um, the Amazon 
as well. It's like you have this potential solution or these these problems around like the refer to the whole world and the problems of the whole world in in climate change and the way that the frustrated kind of western liberals can displace their their desire to to change things is by um advocating very strongly for intervention in in the amazon advocating very strongly for intervention in in africa so i i see that this is kind of my prediction slash hot take of, of the next kind of stage of of the new scramble for africa is that a lot of it will be under underlaid by a justification which is straightforwardly you're putting sovereignty of african states against the interests of the whole world the survival of the population of of, of the whole world as far of humanity so i think there is that kind of displacement where there's a kind of a, a stalemate or an inability to to blow up enough pipelines or to make change quickly enough at, at home which is then kind of exported or displaced um, abroad onto kind of the new scramble for africa i mean that might be a little reductionist but wait wait hold on hold on let me step back one because i'm not because i want to kind of push push you a bit george and kind of elaborating this point so it seems to me like the displacement activity is very clear at the end of history right so the end of history if western societies liberal kind of what low western liberal democracy is the pinnacle of social development um then the only thing that's left is really kind of export you know so it's um and the way in which you uh kind of ornament and beautify the end of history is by exporting those models um, to poorer uh, conflict-ridden countries. So the end of history is an excellent rationale for um, liberal, you know, for kind of liberal export and for NGO rule um, and uh, for all of that uh, to be extended from Western states to Africa at the end of history. It's not clear to me what, you know, so how does that change with the end of the end of history? Because it's very, the displacement aspect of it is clear to me at the end of history. But what is it that's being displaced? Because it's not clear to me from what you said, George, what is it exactly that's being displaced? So it seems to me at the end of history, what's being mm. displaced is the fact that you can't change Western society anymore. You can't improve on it in any significant or fundamental way. But you can qualitatively improve these other places, particularly in Africa. So that's why you export your kind of your middle classes and Western rule in Africa, Western domination in Africa. We're going to solve African poverty. We're going to solve African this, African that is a way of um, consolidating the end of history at home. Mm. Yeah. What it's is a, what is it today? It's a, it's a valid point on which to, 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 put, to push me. And I guess my, I guess my sort of thinking is is like to return to that road to quote like colonialism abroad or civil war at home and this might be overstating the case a little bit but there is the risk of of climate-based civil war at home i mean you know this is my like you know slightly overblowing it a, li a little bit um but things are your apocalyptic doomerism no but like the the idea of like a potent potential of climate lockdowns like other like which would which could cause a high degree of like social conflict at home and class-based that is then exported to environmental intervention overseas that i mean i don't know if that's plausible or not maybe listeners will will um flock to the comments and and in in my support but more likely not more likely on the opposite side i think because it just hearing myself say it there might be some problems with this but i do think there is something about this like it's a release valve of the potential of class conflict at home um 
which didn't exist at the end of history um, and is more ideological than in in the basis not... of like uh, imperialism initially because that production element of, of that kind of needing to find a new market isn't there either so i need to get my head around that I'm a bit not, more but I'm... I'm not discounting it but i yeah. can't see what the mechanics of how it's supposed to work so if you have like a conflict you know kind of let's say a crude class conflict i mean it's certainly not kind of um you know the classical conflict between labor and capital as you had in the in the um kind of classical period of imperialism in late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, but if you have kind of, uh, you know, liberal technocrats, urban metropolitan elites and what have you, and their allies on the one hand, let's say, and um, left behind regions, deindustrialized, Rust Belt, small towns, ex-urban areas and what have you, um, populist voting areas, if you have that as your kind of core cleavage in Western societies, um what is it about intervention or Western involvement in Africa today that helps to displace or stabilize that cleavage? It's not clear to me that that is what it is about. I mean, you could make the case that it's, you know, so in, so much, in as much as um, the geopolitical standoff with an Eastern authoritarian bloc is important to consolidating political, the political authority of Western states, and Afri- in some, as much as Africa plays into that, you know, then it's part of that. Um, but beyond that, it's not clear to me that it really, you know, that it has any of that uh, role. Yeah, I mean, I Alex, don't... Alex, you I, think? I, well, I mean, I, I would take issue a little bit with your portrayal. I mean, unless it's completely um, speculative of the class conflict in, in the West, because it's that would put it too, in two stark well, class terms. I think it's... Yeah, I mean, it's, provincial... I mean, I'm exaggerating for effect, I guess. It's not really... I said it's not class conflict in you know, as you'd once have understood it. But if you understand it as a kind of, as the basic fissure. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's provincial, you know, provincial elites and associated to certain industries versus uh, those associated to finance and tech um, in the metropole. But anyway, um, I I think... I, they bring I would in allies more, with them, right? Sure, sure. Um, but you know, they're they're a stage army, effectively. Um, the yeah, the, fair enough. The issue, I think, is a little bit more straightforward. It's unclear to what extent the green transition can be pursued within the current order. Um, if it is to be, and you know, if uh, kind of providing enough subsidies creates enough of a market for uh, for capitalist interest to pursue. Um, decarbonization, uh, it's energy shift, and so on. It will rely a lot on these um, raw materials, which uh, are which are a lot of them are based in Africa, in, in, including in other places as well. And I think it's more just that's what ul- would ultimately drive it. And that isn't that actually doesn't answer your question because it, I don't see it as a that wouldn't be a form of displacement. That would just be uh, a old fashioned uh, scramble for resources, and that's about it. Well, okay. Here, here's a suggestion, right? So d- displacement isn't the full story. You have to displace something and get something from that displacement. Otherwise, there's there's no kind of reason why you would do it either kind of politically or psychoanalytically. So if like if like old school imperialism, traditional, um, you know, imperialism of the late 19th, early 20th century was partly this displacement gave material like benefits to domestic working classes increases increase their living standards then today instead we have a kind the new scramble for africa is a displacement of of moral ideological struggles um that increase the 
the, the moral living standards of of the kind of the middle classes of of um of europe what is and, moral living and, standards like moral living standard is a concept that i've just come up with that i will off the top <laughs> of my head expound but the idea that like the world is is good and is designed for you and people like you so think about for example the the difference between um say like let's just say for sake of argument like may 2016 and july 2016 in in britain um or like you know you, you can pick your your dates um, that seems to me that's whenever. the end of history you're, you're being that's too the oblique. end of history yeah. displaced it's yeah and, and, history, and, and people cannot i think that the the questions of of sort of status and self-regard do not pay off anymore i mean i think that is precisely what is you know the um, facet of our times because that was to a certain extent underpinned by living standards which were still kind of holding up now that they aren't uh, you can have as much kind of culture war crap going on but ultimately I, you know it's it's just a lot of shouting and it does not um sustain people <laughs> yeah obviously yeah, it's not know. a it's, i don't think it's a cultural i mean like the, the human humanitarian intervention previously was on the basis of the doing something good for the other now it's going to be on the basis of doing good for myself in the in the sense of the climate apocalypse being averted for for everybody. I mean, maybe I am stretching this too far, but I do That's feel not... like that, that, that. But there is something different, right? That the, previously you had the you know capitalist working class class conflict, and and that was the thing that needed to be displaced. And if the structure of class conflict is different today, then the nature of the displacement and what it means will be different. Yeah, but that's what we're trying to... I may to, not have come up with a with a compelling positive... That's um, what we're trying to case. get our heads around, I guess. So I guess, I mean, I guess we have to be uh, agnostic about how far there is, um, how far it is an effective displacement. Like I say, the displacement seems to me clear at the end of history, but it doesn't seem to me that um, Africa can, you know, can work as a kind of NGO playground um, as it would have been for, um, you know, kind of uh, our liberal, our liberal, um, our liberal middle classes at the end of history. And it wasn't that important um, ultimately, even then, right? I mean, that was to a certain extent. I think extent, it was no actually was politically attention. important. It wasn't important in the, you know, in some kind of fundamental geopolitical or strategic sense. But I think um, doing right by Africa, doing good in Africa, was a very important political justification for um, globalization. You know, I mean, by definition, like mm. if you can't improve society at home, how can you improve things? Well, you can improve the fl the plight of the very worst off, right? Um, and so that was, you know, that was what people tried to do. So, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't actually to do with Africa in any meaningful sense, but nonetheless, that Africa was a vital kind of um, backdrop to the era of peak of globalization, a political backdrop. I think that is an important part of it. All right, very good. We'll leave this here. But listeners, please do let us know what you thought. Have we missed out any major factor that we've completely ignored? Or have we misportrayed something? Let us know also what you think of this question of displacement in our uh, attempt to make a comparison between the old scramble for Africa and the new. And uh, over the course of the coming months, we are going to have a lot more episodes on Africa. We're going to have uh, expert interviews and other guests in to talk about their area of expertise across a whole range of uh, different countries and topics concerning Africa and indeed uh, well beyond. So do tune in for that. But for now, that's it from us. Catch you later. Bye. Bye.